Lesson 8 for August 16 to 22, The Church. Sabbath afternoon, August 16. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again this week and we're going to be studying about the church and what Jesus teaches about it. And as we do so, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. We also pray that our lives may be brought into line with what your will for us really is. Bless us now and help us to be a blessing to those around us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's read that again, John 17, verses 20 to 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The roots of the Christian church can be traced back to Adam, Abraham and the sons of Israel. The Lord had called Abraham and later the Israelites to enter into a covenant relationship with him in order to bless the world through them. In the course of sacred history, that covenant relationship was continued by the church. The church was not an invention of the apostles or any human being. During his ministry, Christ himself announced his intention of establishing his church. Matthew 16:18, I will build my church. The church owes its existence to Jesus Christ. He is its originator. According to the Gospels, the term church appears on the lips of Jesus only three times, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. This doesn't mean, however, that he didn't deal with the subject. In fact, he taught very important concepts relating to the church. Our study this week will center on two main ideas, the foundation of the church and the unity of the church. Sunday, August 17, The Foundation of the Church Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, On this rock I will build my church. Who is the rock, Petra in Greek, upon which the church is built? Some interpreters believe that Peter is the rock. They argue that the Lord used a play on words between Peter and rock, Petros and Petra, respectively, in the Greek. A play that presumably would be clearer in the Aramaic language which Jesus probably used. The fact is, however, that nobody knows with certitude the exact wording of Jesus' statement in Aramaic. We have only the Greek text recorded by Matthew, which distinguishes between Petros, a stone, and Petra, rock, a distinction that should not be overlooked. There are good reasons to affirm that Petra refers to Christ. 
The immediate context of Jesus' statement in verses 13 to 20 centers on Christ's identity and mission, not Peter's. Besides, Jesus had previously used the image of building upon a rock, clearly identifying the rock as himself and his teachings. And uh, let's have a look at verses 13 to 20 in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Question. What is the symbolic meaning of rock in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, we look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And Psalm 28 verse 1. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And Psalm 32 verses, sorry, Psalm 31 verses 2 and 3. Bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defence to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. And Psalm 42 verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Psalm 62 verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And Isaiah chapter 17 verse 10. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. When Peter and the other apostles heard Jesus speaking of building his church on a rock, they would have interpreted the image in terms of what it meant in the Old Testament, namely a symbol of God. Peter himself affirmed that Christ is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone in Acts chapter 4 verse 11. And he applied the term rock to Christ as the foundation of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 8. Come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
It is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. While he compared Christians in general to living stones, he applied the term rock or Petra to Christ alone. In the Bible, no human being is called Petra except Jesus. The Apostle Paul used the term Petra in reference to Christ in Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And Paul decidedly declared that no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. We conclude, therefore, that the apostolic church unanimously understood that Jesus Christ himself is the underlying Petra upon which the church is built. And all the prophets and apostles, including Peter, are the first layer of living stones in the church's spiritual edifice. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So, to finish today, why is it important to know that the church, feeble as it sometimes may seem, is founded upon Christ himself? Monday, August 18, Christ's Prayer for Unity It was Thursday night. After the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples went toward the Mount of Olives. On their way to Gethsemane, Jesus stopped and prayed for himself, for his disciples, and for all who later would believe in him through the apostles' preaching. Although the agony of the cross was before him, his greatest concern was not for himself, but for his followers. John chapter 17 presents Jesus' longest intercessory prayer recorded in the Bible. It is encouraging to think that he prayed for everyone who believes in him, including each of us. Question. Read John chapter 17. What was Jesus' main prayer request to the Father regarding the believers? Beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." 
I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will live in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Unity is crucial for the life of the church. We can measure its importance by the fact that four times Christ repeated his eager desire that his followers may be one. In verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then verses 21 to 23, That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. In that special final hour, the Lord could have prayed for many other very significant and necessary things. Instead, he focused his prayer on the unity of the believers. He knew that the greatest danger for the church would be a spirit of rivalry and division. Jesus' plea is not for uniformity, but rather for a personal unity similar to his relationship with the Father. He and the Father are two persons, distinct from each other, with different functions, yet they are one in nature and purpose. By the same token, we all have different temperaments, backgrounds, abilities and roles, but we all should be united in Jesus Christ. This kind of unity does not happen spontaneously. In order to have it, we must fully accept Christ's lordship in our lives. He must mould our character, and we must surrender our will to his will. This unity is not an end in itself. It is a testimony to inspire the world to believe in Christ as the Saviour sent by the Father. Harmony and union among men of diverse dispositions is the strongest witness possible that God has sent his Son to save sinners. It is an unquestionable evidence of Christ's saving and transforming power, and we have the privilege of bearing this witness. So to finish today, many times unity is threatened by nothing other than selfishness. How can we make sure that we are not guilty of jeopardizing unity for no good reason? Tuesday, August 19. Christ's Provision for Unity Question. What is the basis for the unity that Jesus prayed about for his church? Let's look at John chapter 17, verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. And John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You in me and I in you in John 14.20 expresses the intimate relationship we need to have with Jesus. The presence of Jesus in our hearts produces unity. He brings to our lives two things that are indispensable for unity, the divine word and divine love. If we have Jesus, we will also have his words, which are actually the words of the Father, as we read in John chapter 14 and verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, 
and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And also in John 17, verses 8 and 14, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is the truth, in John 14.6, and the word of the Father is truth as well, in John 17.17. 17. Unity in Jesus means unity in the word of God. In order to have unity, we need to agree on the content of the truth as presented in the word of God. Any attempt to attain unity without adherence to a body of biblical beliefs is destined to failure. The Lord also wants his followers to be united by true love. If we have Jesus, we will have the perfect love the Father has for the Son. This love is not a temporary emotion or feeling, but a living and permanent principle of action. In order to have true love, we must have less of self and more of Jesus. Our selfish pride must die and Jesus must live in us. Then we will truly and sincerely love one another, making possible the perfect unity that Jesus prayed for. Ellen White wrote in The Signs of the Times, September 19, 1900, When those who claim to believe the truth are sanctified through the truth, when they learn of Christ, his meekness and lowliness, there will be a complete and perfect unity in the church. It has not always been easy to maintain a high view of truth and to have, have deep love for one another at the same time. There is always the risk of emphasizing one at the expense of the other. There was a time when doctrine alone was considered the most important element for unity. Fortunately, this lack of balance has been gradually corrected. Today, however, we run the risk of going to the other extreme, to think that love is more important than truth for unity. We need to remember that love without truth is blind, and truth without love is fruitless. Mind and heart must work together. The Apostolic Church exhibited the unity for which Christ prayed. As in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine or truth and fellowship or love. Wednesday, August 20. A Great Obstacle for Unity Question. How can Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, help us to avoid divisions and conflicts in the church? Beginning at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It is much easier to see the faults in others 
than to see our own. To criticize gives a false sense of superiority because the critic compares himself with other human beings who seem to be worse than he is. Our aim, however, is not to compare ourselves with others, but with Jesus. How many problems could we avoid if we would all obey the divine command as in Leviticus 19.16, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. It is painfully true that a whisperer separates the best of friends, Proverbs 16.28. On the other hand, there are circumstances when it is necessary to speak about another person. Before we do that, however, we should ask ourselves three questions. One, is what I am about to say true? Exodus 20 verse 16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Sometimes we may report something as a fact while it is actually an assumption or a guess. Besides, we may unconsciously add our own subjective assessment, running the risk of judging erroneously the intentions of other people. 2. Is what I am about to say edifying? Will it be helpful for those who hear it? Paul admonishes us to speak only what is good for necessary edification in Ephesians 4.29. If something were true but not edifying, wouldn't it be better not to say it? 3. Is it possible to say it in a loving way? The way we say something is as important as what we say. Let's look at Proverbs 25 verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. If it is true and edifying, we have to be sure that we can say it in a way that it will not offend other people. James compares the tongue with a little fire that kindles a great forest. In James chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. If we hear gossip, we shouldn't add more wood to the fire, because where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. Proverbs 26.20 Gossip requires a chain of transmitters to be alive. We can stop it by simply refusing to hear it, or, if we have already heard it, avoid repeating it. As Ellen White wrote in The Upward Look, page 306, Instead of gossiping, thus creating mischief, let us tell of the matchless power of Christ and speak of His glory. And so to finish today, there's no doubt about it. Criticism of others can make us feel better about ourselves. What happens, however, when we compare ourselves with Jesus? Thursday, August 21, The Restoration of Unity Question. Why is reconciliation with an offended brother a prerequisite for acceptable worship? 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There are different kinds of offerings brought to the altar, but Jesus was probably referring to an animal sacrifice so the sinner could receive divine forgiveness. Before we can obtain God's pardon, however, we must make things right with others. Reconciliation requires a humble recognition of our faults. Without this attitude, how could we ask for God's forgiveness? Question. What three steps should we follow if someone has hurt us? Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus tells us that instead of talking about the offence with others, we should speak to the erring person, not to criticise, but to show the person his or her fault and invite him or her to repent, as Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbour and not bear sin because of him. With a spirit of meekness and tender love, we should make every possible attempt to help the person see his or her mistake, allowing him or her to repent and apologise. It is very important not to put the person to shame by making his or her error public. That would make the offender's recovery much more difficult. Ideally, the private conversation will lead to repentance and reconciliation. However, if the offender does not admit wrongdoing or is unwilling to make things right, the next recourse is to take one or two witnesses in an effort to persuade the erring person, as it says in Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. They should not be personally involved in the situation in order to be in a better position to call the offender to repentance. If the offender refuses to hear their counsel, they can bear witness to the efforts that have been made on his or her behalf. Finally, and only if the first two attempts have failed, we should tell it to the church. Not yet for a disciplinary action, but for an ultimate appeal to lead to repentance. From the beginning, the whole process has a redemptive goal, as it says in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So to finish today, we should remember that redemption is the best way to bring healing for everyone involved in a dispute. When someone has hurt us, why do we so often not follow the procedure that Jesus gave? How can we learn to not let a desire for revenge 
cloud our thinking. Friday, August 22. From Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 236, Union is strength, division is weakness. When those who believe present truth are united, they exert a telling influence. Satan well understands this. Never was he more determined than now to make of none effect the truth of God by causing bitterness and dissension among the Lord's people. And in the same book, page 58, we should endeavour to think well of all men, especially our brethren, until compelled to think otherwise. We should not hastily credit evil reports. These are often the result of envy or misunderstanding, or they may proceed from exaggeration or a partial disclosure of facts. And that brings us to our six discussion questions for this week. 1. How do you deal with people who... Though their doctrine, you are sure, is wrong, are kind, accepting, and loving, despite your differences. How should you relate to them? On the other hand, how do you deal with people who, though you agree with them theologically, are harsh, judgmental, and unloving toward anyone who doesn't see things exactly as they do? 2. However important unity is to the Christian Church, how well has that unity been maintained? How do you think a non-Christian looking at Christianity would view the idea of Christian unity? 3. Jesus instructs us to forgive those who hurt us. But what if they have not repented and do not ask us to forgive them? How are we to relate to them? 4. What is the relationship between love and discipline? 5. The ecumenical movement claims to be an attempt to create the unity that Christ prayed for. However well-intentioned the motives that some might have, what problems can we see with the ecumenical movement apart from the obvious issues regarding last-day events? And six, we should endeavour to think well of all men, especially our brethren, until compelled to think otherwise. How should we understand that sentence, especially in light of the fallen nature of humanity? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Tithe Receipt and it comes from Port Vila in Vanuatu where Charlie Tui is captain of a fishing boat. Charlie Tui, like many young men in the island nation of Vanuatu, had come from an outer island to the capital city looking for work. Charlie found a job and moved into a barracks with other young men from his home island. The friends spent their weekends drinking and smoking. But one man was different. Geoffrey didn't smoke or drink, and he wasn't interested in using marijuana. The other men learned that Geoffrey had become a Seventh-day Adventist after attending an Adventist secondary school. Charlie and his friends teased Geoffrey mercilessly. One day, Frank, one of the guys in the barracks, found a slip of paper near Geoffrey's bed. 
It was a tithe receipt from an Adventist church. Hey, Geoffrey, do you really give this much money to a church? He asked teasingly. Geoffrey answered simply that God demands one-tenth of our income. The guys were surprised because on their island their families had paid their pastor with a basket of food or a chicken. They sat down to listen as Geoffrey explained important doctrines of the Bible. Surprised by their interest, Geoffrey asked if they wanted to know more about the Adventist church, and several of the men agreed. Geoffrey invited a pastor to come to the barracks to study with his friends. About ten of the men met with the pastor each week. Charlie lost interest in the Bible studies, but three others joined the Adventist church. Charlie's life changed too, for the worse. While out partying with friends, he was injured in an automobile accident that killed the driver's girlfriend. When Charlie sobered up, he was haunted knowing that he could have died as well. Then Frank, one of his friends who had become an Adventist, invited Charlie to attend meetings at his church. Charlie agreed. This time he listened carefully and realized that the speaker told the truth. He wanted to know more. Charlie invited his girlfriend Agnes to join him. She didn't want to, but reluctantly agreed. Charlie asked for prayer to stop drinking and smoking, and God delivered him. He prepared for baptism, but Agnes took longer to be convinced. Two years later, she too joined God's remnant church. They were married. Charlie's and Agnes's family resist their invitations to consider the Adventist faith, but at least now the families speak to the couple. Charlie and Agnes pray for opportunities to share their faith with them. Charlie credits Geoffrey's dropped tithe receipt for first opening his heart's door to God's message. Faithfulness to God in tithes and offerings brings unexpected blessings. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.